You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. 1871 seemed like the annus horribilis for one Horatio G. Spafford, the horrible year. Earlier on in the year, his son had died, and in the great Chicago fire, he lost his livelihood, his work, his business, everything that he had built. And so he and his wife, Anna, decided that they were done with Chicago, and they were going to actually, they're going to move over to Europe. And so they spent a couple of years saving and uh, working to endeavor to get over to Europe, to build a new life for themselves. And finally, in 1873, Anna and his four daughters went to Europe. Horatio left behind uh, to earn some more money and to finish up whatever business was outstanding. Until one day, Horatio received a telegram from his wife, Anna, And all it said was two words, saved alone. On their journey to Europe, the boat that was taking Anna and the four girls, along with 200 other people, had had a catastrophic incident colliding with another ship. Every single person except Anna drowned. Horatio, in his grief, sped as fast as he could to a boat to get over to Europe to be with his grieving wife. And when he passed the location where the ships had sunk, he penned perhaps one of the most well-known songs, It Is Well. When he passes the spot where the boat sank, he writes, When peace like a river attended my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What anchors a person to be able to proclaim such a thing in the midst of their grief and in the midst of their pain? To be able to say, despite the loss of his son and his wife and his four daughters, the loss of his business, to be able to say in that moment, it is well. Part of me knows the answer, the right answer, which is the next line. Horatio writes, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Horatio knew the gospel. He knew Jesus. He knew his life and death and resurrection. He knew that his daughters would be with the Lord forever. And so often we know this truth as well. But in the midst of our pain and suffering, our heads know this to be true, but our hearts feel something else. What do we do in those moments? What do we do when suffering has overwhelmed us to the point that even worshipping God feels foreign and distant? Because I know every single Sunday there are people who come in great pain, in grieving and mourning, who are experiencing the brokenness of their bodies or the brokenness of relationships, who are experiencing the burden of finances, worrying about losing their home, maybe losing their partner. I know that Sonomous come with a great darkness on us. How do we worship in the dark? How do we worship when the light feels like it's come out of our lives? 
For a long time now, Psalm 22 has been my favorite psalm. I've probably told you this already. It often gets forgotten next to Psalm 23, which is the great psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. People don't really remember Psalm 22 as much, but it starts off like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. This almost feels like an illegitimate prayer. This is something written by David. He's talking to God. It feels like, how could you even pray a prayer like this? How could you cry out to God and say, you're not here, what are you doing? But actually, there's only one kind of person that can pray a prayer like this. I wonder if you caught the first words. My God. My God, the God who is mine. I am calling out to the God who I know and love and who knows me and loves me. I need you to be exactly who you say you are. This is not the prayer of an angry atheist or of an unconvinced and uninterested unbeliever. This is the prayer of someone who trusts in God. This is the prayer of someone who is overwhelmed with grief and doubt and despair and loss and still is coming to God to allow Him to shape His experience. Now, Psalm 22 ends with David praising the Lord. But I love that this is a possibility for the Christian, that we can call out to God regardless of what we feel, regardless of what we're experiencing because we want him to shape us and our lives. There are truths that Christians hold on to and cherish that shape our experience of suffering. They don't diminish our suffering. They don't ignore our suffering. Sometimes we don't even move on from our suffering, but they place it in its proper story and context. And this is not a hypothetical discussion for me. As long as I can remember, my body has not worked the way it was meant to. I have multiple chronic, incurable diseases and illnesses. As far as I know, I will have them for the rest of my life here on earth. When I was 14 years old, I was told that the likelihood because of the severity of the illness was that I would not finish high school and would not finish university. And from year 8 to year 11, I went through high school with a 15% attendance record. My body does not work the way it was meant to. My mum, when she was 25 years old, was involved in a catastrophic car accident. And from the age of 25, she has lived her whole life with a spine that is fused together and severed nerve endings in her legs. She lives with debilitating pain every single day. Five years into Sarah and my marriage, Sarah woke up with a pain in her shoulder and we went to the doctor. The doctor said, well, we're not really sure what it is. Maybe you should go to the hospital and check it out. And the, the hospital said, well, we've we found a, a lump. And then we found a mass. And then we found a large mass. And now we found out the mass is cancerous. And now we found out that the mass is mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma. Only to be followed by six months of chemotherapy. Now, you may have suffered more or suffered less than me. It's not a competition. What is true is that all of us will suffer. This is not a hypothetical discussion. 
All of us need to know how to process our pain and our grief and our suffering in light of what we know to be true about Jesus and his gospel. And so I think there are at least three things that are worth holding on to, worth holding on to with everything that we have as Christians. Because as Christians, one, we believe that our suffering is not meaningless. That every single millisecond of our endurance in our suffering is not meaningless. Secondly, we believe that we never suffer alone because of the gospel. And lastly, because of the gospel, we know that suffering has an expiration date. Our suffering will end. It is not eternal. And so as Christians, we hold on to this. But let me, let me explore these by picking up 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 7. We have this treasure in jar clays, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body, of the de- in the, body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in us, in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with the Scriptures, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and so we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with him and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as extends more and more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature, our bodies are wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, For this slight, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look at not what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Paul doesn't write these words as an ivory tower theorist, as someone thinking about suffering but not experiencing suffering. This is how he starts out his letter to the church in Corinth, his second letter. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He starts off his letter saying, I want to die. I I feel like we've received the sentence of death. The weight is so unbearable upon me that I would prefer the grave to living. I feel like my life is coming to an end. This is so unbearably overwhelming, this suffering. I'm crushed. And yet four chapters later, he's writing to them so that they may not lose hope, so that they may not lose heart. Just pick up like, some of the language that he writes. He says, 
that they are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul knows what it is to be broken, to be afflicted, to be perplexed, to be persecuted, to be struck down, and yet he has this secret, this hope, this truth that he's holding on to, clinging on to with everything that he's got, that is transforming his experience of his suffering even as he writes. What does he say to them? Verse 17 and 18. This slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure because we look not at what can be seen but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. One of the great temptations for each of us in our suffering, in our pain, in our grieving, is to think that it is entirely meaningless. We look at our pain and suffering going meaningless, meaningless. And Paul looks at it and says, it's not meaningless. It's doing something in us. It's creating something in us. It's not meaningless. Our suffering is meaningful. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. In comparison to what lies ahead, if we could see this, even the deepest, darkest day of our life would only feel like a slight momentary affliction. It's not meaningless. God is doing something in our pain and in our suffering, producing something for us, shaping us, leading us, preparing us for eternal weight of glory. And I think the temptation comes when we look not to what lies ahead, but what looks right now. I can't see the reason for my suffering. I can't understand the reason why this is in my life, and therefore it must be meaningless. Paul says, don't look to what you can see. Look to what you can't see. Look to the promises of God. Look to Jesus. This is the whole Christian belief encapsulated. Christians believe that on the very darkest day, the death of Christ, the death of God's only Son, the death of God's only one and only Son, that God has done something glorious. That out of pain and death and misery and grief, God has crafted something incredibly glorious. It's what, uh, in Genesis, referring to the story of Joseph, what you intended for evil, God designed for good. God makes broken things into glorious, beautiful things all the time. And he does so even in our pain and in our suffering and in our grief. It is not meaningless. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And so when your mum passes away, when you receive the cancer diagnosis at 26, when the terminal diagnosis comes through, when you feel crushed beyond everything you can bear, don't say it's meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that one day we will receive because of what God is preparing in us. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But maybe you're sitting there and going, great, that's, that's fine. 
there is an eternal weight of glory that at one time I will receive sometime in the future. But what about right now? What about my experience right here, right now? I feel so overwhelmed. I'm not singing it is well with my soul. I'm singing something more like Psalm 22. I'm crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. You might very well feel like that this morning. You need to know who else said those words. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you feel like crying out those words, know that Jesus cried them first. And on that terribly dark day, when everything seemed lost, on that terribly dark day when Jesus cried out that he had been forsaken, on that terribly dark day when Jesus had been pierced in his ribs and in his hands, on that terribly dark day when Christ cried out his last, on that terribly dark day, when the tomb door closed and it seemed like all had been lost, Jesus went to the dark for us. And he didn't just stay there. We believe that Jesus swallowed up the darkness, that he defeated death and sin, that he defeated all of this so that as alienated as Christians might feel in this world, as abandoned as we might feel, as alone and afraid as we might feel, Christians know that we are never alone because Jesus is always with us in the dark. We are never alone. We are never abandoned. Jesus is with us. He knows what it is to experience grief and pain and suffering. And he never leaves us alone in our pain. He prays those prayers with us. He fills us with his spirit. He points us towards a hope yet to be seen. We are never alone. That's why the second verse of It Is Well matters so much. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That's what Spafford is holding on to in his grief. That Jesus has died for me and therefore I still have hope. That Jesus has died for me and therefore I am not alone. This is the promise of the gospel. That no matter how broken or bruised, no matter how battered or crushed we feel, Jesus has come for us. God loves us. He is with us. He is transforming us. And there will be a day when our suffering comes to an end. There will come a day when the pains of death and sickness and illness are no more. Death and pain and suffering have an expiration date. They will not be forever. Revelation 21 puts it like this. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. Death has an end. Suffering has an end. Tears and pain and sickness and disease and illness have an end because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has won on the cross, we know that our present suffering is not forever. We know that because Jesus died and rose again, I too and you too, if you believe in him, will rise not in our broken bodies but in perfected resurrection bodies. I will yet live a day where there is no chronic illness in my body. My mum will live a day where her spine doesn't have to be fused together. I will see, we will see a day where death and pain and suffering and grieving are no more because the Lord has promised. And so, while we wait for that day, we know that our suffering is not meaningless. There is a future glory that if we could only see it, we would be just in awe of what God is doing and done in our lives. We move forward not as single people, but as people who know that we are never alone. The Lord is with us. Jesus is with us in our pain. And we look forward, friends, to that day when sickness and disease, when death and mourning and crying and pain will be no more. That is how the gospel transforms our suffering. It doesn't diminish it. It doesn't reduce it. It doesn't ignore it. It transforms it and places it in its proper story. Martin said it best. Even suffering one day will have to bow to our Lord Jesus. And so with that in mind, let me pray. God, you are the one who is and was and is to come. Suffering sometimes feels so overwhelming. Every single Sunday there are those of us who come with a great darkness on our hearts and a darkness in our minds. We feel like even dragging ourselves to worship is a burden too heavy to bear. God, may we look to you. Whether we are crying out, it is well with my soul, or we are crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? May we come to you. God, would you impress upon our hearts that every single millisecond of our suffering and pain is producing for us, in us, an eternal weight of glory that we will receive at some point. Will you impress upon our hearts that we are never alone? that we have the risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, on our side, who is present in our pains, who sits with us in our sorrows, who gives us hope and helping in our grief. God, may we look forward to that day when suffering ends. I cannot wait for that day. God, may you help us wait well, trusting in you, but God, may we cling to these truths. May we not depart from them. May we not depart from you. 
We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.